question. When you think about your colleagues at work, do you consider them passive and needing help? Or as a persecutor who just doesn't know how difficult they make your job? Or as a hero in knight in shining armour who you rely upon to rescue you? If the answer is yes, all three, you're not alone. In any relationship dynamic, we can easily fall into the drama triangle where we see people as either a helpless victim, an evil persecutor or a heroic rescuer. In healthcare and other high-stress organisations, with colleagues, clients or patients, all too often we can fall into the role of rescuer, which is exhausting for us and profoundly disempowering for others. The only answer is to step out of the drama and take on another role. In this episode, I'm joined by Annie Hanacom, executive and team coach and leadership development expert, to discuss how we can so easily take on one of these dysfunctional roles and how to get out. So listen, if you want to know why the rescuer role is so problematic for everybody. If you want to know how to be less rescuer and more coach in your interactions with your colleagues and why simply changing your language and using two simple phrases can dramatically change your mindset. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, life hacks for doctors and busy professionals who want to beat burnout and work happier. I'm Dr. Rachel Morris. I'm a GP, turned coach, speaker and specialist in teaching resilience. And I'm interested in how we can wake up and be excited about going to work no matter what. I've had 20 years experience of working in the NHS, both on the front line and teaching leadership and resilience. I know what it's like to feel overwhelmed, worried about making a mistake and one crisis away from not coping. 2021 promises to be a particularly challenging year. Even before the coronavirus crisis, we were facing unprecedented levels of burnout. We have been compared to frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, working harder and longer. And the heat has been turned up so slowly that we hardly notice the extra long days becoming the norm and have got used to the low-grade feelings of stress and exhaustion. Let's face it, frogs generally only have two choices. Stay in the pan and be boiled alive or jump out of the pan and leave. But you are not a frog and that's where this podcast comes in. You have many more options than you think you do. It is possible to be master of your own destiny and to craft your work and life so that you can thrive even in the most difficult of circumstances. Through training as an executive and team coach, I discovered some hugely helpful resilience and productivity tools that transformed the way I approached my work. I've been teaching these principles over the last few years as the Shapes Toolkit program, because if you're happier at work, you'll simply do a better job. In this podcast, I'll be inviting you inside the minds of friends, colleagues and experts, all who have an interesting take on this, so that together we can take back control to thrive, not just survive in our work and our lives and love what we do again. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. 
It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash get your life back. It's really great to have with me on this episode of You Are Not A Frog, Annie Hanacom. Now, Annie is an executive and a team coach. She's a leadership development expert and she's the co-host of our membership for Busy Leaders, the Resilient Team Academy. She's also an Enneagram 2 and a self-confessed rescuer. Annie, welcome. (laughs) (laughs) It's great to have you here. We've had a recent podcast episode called Passing the Naughty Monkey Back with Dr. Amit Sharma, which has got, you know, hundreds and hundreds of listens. It's been one of our most popular ever. And it's really interesting. It was all about uh, not leaving with other people's burdens, being able to sort of pass that back and not taking on um, other people's other people's stuff that isn't ours. And that's one of the things that causes, I think, professionals in, in all sorts of organisations to get stressed and burnt out. So that was one of the reasons I thought actually it'd be really good to have you on the podcast to talk about this a bit, because I know you've been doing a lot of work in this area and you've got a real deep understanding of it, not just from your leadership development and team coach stuff, but also from the, the lens of the Enneagram, which we talked about on a previous episode. So first of all, when we say you're an Enneagram 2, what do you mean by that? So that really is just a lens at which to look at what our thinking process, our deeper motivation might be. Um, And so Enneagram is just a a personality profiling tool at its very simplest form. But it really is around looking at how are we motivated? What are we drawn to? What possible blind spots might be lurking? Even when we know what type we are, those can still emerge in what I would call your defense mechanism. So something happens, you might have a reaction of some sort, and then we automatically default to a certain reaction. And so an Enneagram type two being the considerate helper or the supporter, or you know, there are various different terms you might see in different schools of Enneagram. But it really is the classic rescuer where it's wanting to go in to help other, to support, to pick everything up for everyone else, to make it better for them. Uh, and of course, there are consequences to that. So how, what am I left with then? How am I feeling about the fact that I've actually picked stuff up for others uh, becomes a slightly more subconscious thing that starts to happen. And so with all types, you know, whatever angle you're looking at this from, it really is so interesting to think about well, where do I stand in this? Because the, the element of rescuing is certainly familiar to all of us. We just come at it from a different point of view, I think. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, it, you know, when I hear about an Enneagram number two being called the considerate helper, I think, wow, that's such a lovely thing to be. You know, you're helping each other people, you're supporting people, you're you're picking people up. That sounds very altruistic. It sounds like something we should all be aiming for, perhaps. And so that's such an interesting point. Uh, you'll say considerate helper to many twos. In fact, I worked with one recently. I was coaching her and she said, what am I, a Christmas elf or something? <laughs> so it's not, it's not always the term that people want. Uh, again, it's just a label, right? But uh, absolutely. And so what you've picked up on there, Rachel, are, are almost the gifts that we all carry. And so there is, there's absolutely a beautiful aspect of being there to support others, being in service of, we talk about servant leadership all the time. How do we serve others in such a way that it really is serving the needs that you see out there, not by way of, of um you know, my own gain or or wanting to do this with some ulterior agenda. So absolutely, there's beauty in that in its purest form. But of course, as we all know, so few things seem to exist in their purest form. There's always kind of a an underlying 
uh, narkiness or a message or something, or maybe there is even some form of agenda, it's it's uh, not often that we can really say we're doing something in its truest form, even as a type two. Uh, it's it's often driven by a deeper motivation which sits behind that, which is certainly for the type two, and I obviously speak uh, from lived experience of wanting to be accepted, wanting to be loved, wanting to be included, uh, even though that might not be sitting at the forefront of, of diving in to help someone, if you really sit and dig down as to why one's doing it, that is definitely a motivation that is present. Uh, so it's been about liked, accepted, but sometimes it's just your job, right? And that's where it gets tricky because I'm thinking, well, if you look at the job descriptions of most of us and many of our colleagues, you know, even as a, a even as a team coach and a coach, you're there to help teams. And, you know, even though you're definitely trying to stay out of the whole doing it for them stuff, but certainly as a doctor and, you know, another healthcare professional or, or a lawyer or, you know, any of these high stress professions, that is what we're paid to do. We're paid to help people. So is it the helping that's wrong or is it the motivation that's wrong or is that is it the way that we're doing it that 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 becomes difficult and problematic yeah and that's such an interesting topic and I would go yes <laughs> you know there's <laughs> elements of all of those right because it does depend on where you come from but but I guess it's that latter one mostly of how are we doing it and therefore what's the consequence of it um and so for instance, uh, you know, if we just stick with Enneagram 2 for a moment, and you know, I might be going in to help, I'm rescuing, I'm really being there in service of someone. And yet, if that carries on for too long, if I'm doing too much of that, I start to build up some form of resentment. What about me? Suddenly, I've got all these questions around, well, hang on, you know, what what is the impact on me? Isn't anyone seeing me? And then that as you can well imagine, starts to have its own consequences where there's resentment that builds up, there's a, a shortness, there's an impatience that might build up. Now, if you look just to, to let's leave the poor old Enneagram 2 alone for the moment and, and look at, there might be types, and I won't necessarily speak into specific types here, but some might be helping because it's the right thing to do. So Rachel, you almost touched on that there. They, you know, uh, so a strict perfectionist might be going, well, I'm paid to do it. It's the right thing to do. And so therefore I will do it. And certainly are not doing it for love or appreciation or being included. They're being paid and it's expected mm -hmm. of them. And so they will do it with no questions asked. Um, other types might come in and, and step into rescuer because they just see it's all falling apart and you can't have things that are falling apart. So actually, I'll be the, I would imagine part of the narrative might be, uh, you know, the, the knight in shining armor, look at me, I'm going to save the day, I'm going to come fix all these pieces because everyone around here is just not able to do that clearly. And so that's up to me. And there's a very different narrative sitting underneath that motivation that might come in about I need to be strong. I'll bring in the safe pair of hands. Don't you worry, I've got this. Mm. That's interesting. So lots of different motivations behind being the rescuer. But fundamentally, what is the problem with being a rescuer? Why, why do we talk about it like it's not so good? And again, I, yeah, it's such a great question because there's, it's a, there's a complex answer there, right? It's, there's no one straightforward answer. Supporting someone, being in service of their needs is absolutely what we want to be doing. The challenge comes, and I think you alluded to this earlier, Rachel, in how we do it. And so inherent in the term rescuer is I'm 
stronger than you and I'll fix it and you can't do it. And so what it leaves potentially is a sense of inequality in how this has happened. And so I'm coming from a point of being able to do something that you can't. There's no empowering uh, narrative in that. There's, there's no empowering language in that. And so on both ends of the rescuer being the one who's saving the day and the person being rescued is seen, therefore, almost as a victim to, well, you couldn't help yourself. Let me do that for you. And again, with different angles coming in, that is still part of the narrative that sits there. And that's problematic if we're really wanting people to think for themselves, act for themselves, step up and to have equality in how we are leading others. So certainly there might be hierarchical uh, relationship in terms of someone managing someone else, but that certainly doesn't mean that the empowerment needs to bring about some form of inequality where someone can't step up and help themselves. Yeah. And so what we're starting to talk about is that dynamic that you get into where you have a rescuer and then in order to have a rescuer, you've got to have someone who, who is the victim who is completely helpless that needs to be rescued rescued by the rescuer who is a knight in shining armor a complete hero but in order for that to happen what do you what else do you need you need a persecutor don't you you need someone who is causing the problems and then you've got the classic drama triangle that Stephen Cartman talked about in in the 1960s i think a, a little bit of background for of those of you that not heard about the drama triangle before, Stephen Cartman was Eric Byrne's student. Eric Byrne wrote the book Games People Play. So Eric Byrne was sort of the father of transactional analysis, which is all to do with adult to adult, adult to child, parent to child uh, interactions. And a lot of us would have learned about that when we learned to consult or see clients, things like that. For me, the drama triangle is one of the most powerful shapes that we talk about in any of the sort of resilience training that I do with teams, particularly for managers, because the minute you start to talk about the dynamic and you talk to describe what goes on and you talk, start to talk about the rescue, you can just see light bulbs going off in people's head going, oh yes, oh yes, that's me. Particularly when you sort of describe a dynamic of, so a manager with a team and the team are overloaded with work and having a bad time. So the team comes to the manager as the rescuer says, will you do this for me? And the manager goes, yes, of course I will. Cause I'm a good manager. That's my job. I'll do it. And then one by one, more people come to them and say, will you do this? Will you do this? And soon the manager's just overwhelmed with work and she stops being able to do everything for the, the rest of the team who are seeing themselves as victims, but because she can't do anything to help anymore, the victims keep demanding that she helps. And so how does how does the rescuer feel? They don't feel like a rescuer anymore. They've gone straight into victim. They feel like the victim now. And they feel like the team have become their persecutor almost. And then if the manager can't give the team members what the, the, the team members need, the, the team will say, well, they're the persecutor now because they're, they're being a bad manager, blah, blah, blah. And I see this happening time and time again in organizations where Teams or staff expect certain people to sort sort things out for them. And if they can't sort them out, boom, they're suddenly into being put in the persecutor role rather than the rescuer role. And, and it's just a very demoralized, demoralizing place to be because the person who has been cast now as the persecutor never feels like the persecutor. Do they? they end up feeling like the victim. They're like, I was just trying to help. And I just think back to the 
the times when with patients, I just thought to myself, I was only trying to help. (laughs) Or with colleagues, I was only trying to help. And then, oh gosh, and then you just keep moving around the drama triangle. I don't know. Is that an accurate depiction, Annie, of what what can happen in some organisations? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that sliding between roles is just... It's such a slippery slope because, and as as you talk there, one almost loses track of where someone's at and where someone's going and who's where, and and you can see how what what happens then is that the line of communication gets confused because now are you are you the bad guy here or I want to you were helping me but now you're being an ass so what's going on now because you've got all cross and am I am I where do I stand and you can see how the confusion then ourselves we go oh yes actually I did offer to help. But then it all got quite confused. And so the problem is that this is a a mental space. It can happen quite quickly. It can happen. You can take up three roles in one conversation. It can happen slowly over time. And so this is something that, you know, you see in uh, in micro versions happening quite quickly in a conversation. But you can see it play out in almost the life cycle of a team. It might be a newly formed team. It might be a a team under pressure because of a new project that's landed. So it's it's there's no one way of how it happens. But also what we need to be clear of is things can trigger it as well. So I've got lots going on at home and I might have had a really funny conversation with my partner this morning and then I had a bad trip into the office in the days we used to do that or we used to do, or at least dropping the kids at school and something went wrong and then I had some bad news about something else and now I come into a team engagement that's all there right and it's playing it's playing into the situation so we can't sort of draw nice boundaries around it and expect ourselves to be very clear about our role because life happens and so what's so interesting in this space Rachel because I think what you outlined there is such a classic scenario in many different interactions where we, you know, even in our friendships, I think that, you know, particularly as women, dare I say that, you know, I just think about how emotions play a much bigger role in my relationships than I, I think they used to when I was, you know, I, I think, you know, in times of my life, I've been stable, but then I, you know, it depends what I'm dealing and I can find, I can flare up an emotion and suddenly that triangles at play again. And I'm I'm really struggling with with, with some of that for myself. Uh, my husband can be much more rational than me, except there are times I'm going, you're not stopping to think how you might be coming across. And so, you know, then we get into the gender debate. And so you can throw in all sorts of dynamics here. The point is that actually what we want to do is just recognize it. I think what's so important here is just to recognize that these roles we take up, these protagonists that we might be playing or these roles we assign to someone else exist in our minds um, and yet we start to behave in reaction to them. And that's where the, you know, to come again to your question around, well, what's the problem with all of this? It's when we start to behave in reaction to where we are mentally going with something. And so that's a place I think you can well appreciate, can start to create all sorts of dynamics that are not useful personally, in our teams, in our broader organisations. Yeah. So, Presumably, one of the first ways of sort of escaping the drama triangle is, you know, of trying to get out of this. And don't worry, we are going somewhere with this, folks. We will, we won't leave you hanging as rescuers and victims. We're going to talk about how you can get out of this. One of them is actually recognizing you're in it in the first place, yeah. and what role you're taking. How how can people do that? Yeah, and so again, this is going to differ for different people, but the 
the classic answer, which is always so painfully simple, is finding a gap, finding a pause, finding a breathing space, taking a moment. And actually what I'm seeing now, and again, Rachel, I know you're seeing a lot of this as well, is the back, you know, back-to-back meetings used to mean something. Now they literally are. You've got no seconds break. Meetings are overrunning. It's one Zoom to the next Zoom. And so you literally are getting no space to even breathe between meetings. There's way more of this breathless back-to-backness. And so the pause is just absent so often. Uh, certainly one of my quick hacks for people has been, actually, if you've got meetings in your diary, I bet many people have a default of an hour-long meeting, is to catch yourself and to go, I wonder if I could cover what I needed to cover in 50 minutes. And then I've got a 10-minute break. The challenge with doing 30-minute meetings is you're just going to fill the other 30 with another another meeting. Mm -hmm. And so a 30-minute meeting should be a 25-minute meeting. Uh, you know, no one's going to steal those five minutes from you. It's create. So we've got to work quite hard at creating the pauses. So sometimes there's the mechanic of actually having shorter meetings and then using, valuing those 10 minutes or those five minutes for what you've put them there for. Not to say, oh, I've got five minutes to check my email. Let me quickly do that and check my messages and do a whole lot of stuff and be late for my next meeting. So, so, so recognizing and valuing what those 10 minutes are for. They're the pause to stop and go, how did I go in that meeting? How am I operating? What am I carrying with me? What is something I need to catch myself in? And how do I want to show up for my next meeting, my next engagement? And just to self-observe. That's so important because I'm thinking, you know, throughout the whole of the pandemic, I've been running loads of podcasts, webinars and everything on, on well-being, right? You know, telling people to take breaks and not just, it's not just about meetings, but if you're seeing clients or patients, you know, people have got patients, you know, they literally just got a, a list on the screen of people they've got to call. And there are no natural breaks in that, whereas before you'd have a natural lunch break or whatever. But I've been talking about the importance of scheduling your breaks and deciding what you're going to do with those breaks but there's that and it's not just for well-being is it it's not just for well-being it's for reflection to think okay how am I in myself am I in any of these funny roles where's the pause button what stories are going on in my head about this so yeah it's it's so so important it's just dawning on me now actually (laughs) the breaks are to do with more than just getting getting your sugar levels up and going to the loo and rehydrating. They are also about some mental decluttering and housekeeping. And actually, and I, I've got a feeling, Rachel, you're going to have some of the neuroscience behind this, but I'm just going to give you a lovely example. You know, as you said, sometimes we just need to, even now, you know, you're stopping and you're thinking, you're going, actually, it's really, there's value in this. I was building a puzzle with my family quite recently and I thought I was being very clever doing a beautiful photograph we have that has sky mountain sea and sand and then my little family you know they're quite small in the picture I want to challenge any of you to build a puzzle that's got sand sea sky it's just so hard so I was getting in such a muddle and I was you know you can imagine mentally I was like oh this is so hard and and I, oh, I'm going to persevere, I'm going to persevere. And I kept going at it and the doorbell went and I went to go and it was a delivery. And I literally, it took me probably a minute. I walked to the door, got the delivery. Thanks very much. Put it down, closed the door, walked back to the puzzle. And within a minute, I'd placed three pieces, which previously I know it would have taken me 20 minutes to be able to place three pieces. And so aside from anything else, there's something about clarity, 
reprogramming, being able to see a challenge with fresh eyes that comes with a pause. I mean, yes, there is loads of loads of neuroscience behind it. One is when you're focusing on a task, you're in you're in focus mode. You're in your, your, your task positive network where your brain waves are very linear and you're really sort of focusing on something. And then when you're in um, a break mode, you go into your diffuse mode. So your brain starts connecting across hemispheres and it starts to sort of be creative and stuff. This is completely subconsciously. You're probably not thinking about anything. But this, I think, in your diffuse mode is where you'll suddenly get the word rescuer or victim just travel across your consciousness and you go oh that's what just happened with that patient I was just with or with that client I was just with oh my gosh I felt like a victim because they were giving me some difficult feedback or I was in rescuer because I was saying what can I do to you know and you know it's about clarity I guess sometimes also it's about thinking I'm feeling a bit stuck in this situation is is there an element of the drama triangle in it's almost just having a I don't know a triangle or something stuck to your computer going oh where am I am I in this am I in this and I think this is one of those models actually just awareness of it can be really mindset shifting in itself can't it I get it you're pushed for time and with over 200 episodes how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops, top five episodes, sorry, and leap into your happiest thriving self again. Just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz. Absolutely. And, and, and as you know, you've just indicated when we're so busy and there's so much going on, we kind of default into these roles and by having it visible, by having it there to question yourself, it's, you suddenly realize the point of choice because you can choose to step out of that. Because again, it's a mental state of, you know, you, you know, there's no real rescuer. There's no real knight on shining armor, but we've mentally taken that on. And so we can mentally drop that as well. And so Again, to reiterate, because as soon as we've taken that on, the behavior to support it comes with it. But as soon as we choose not to operate in that way, a different behavior can emerge, which is to say, I am feeling quite cross. There's something here about, you know, I've taken too much on. But actually, if I really sit to think about that, I'm trying to blame my team when actually, actually, I'm the one who offered. I'm the one who took it all on. So what do I do about that? And so we start addressing a, the things we can control, because actually I had control of that. And so what do I need to do about that? But also we can get really honest with ourselves. It's much harder to be honest with yourself when you're busy and you keep going and look at me, I'm so busy, I'm doing stuff. So sometimes what we need to catch in ourselves is we don't pause because it might be slightly uncomfortable. It's not nice realizing that actually I've only got myself to blame here. What do I need to do about that? That's sometimes just not somewhere we want to go. And so recognizing that a little bit of discomfort might come with the pause. It's not a, a big kumbaya, this is amazing. Oh, I've got revelations now. I'm going to do everything perfectly. Actually, it can bring some real gritty thought and shifts in behavior that are necessary. When you're talking about discomfort as well, I'm thinking, you know, whenever I've reflected on, you know, what role am I in the drama triangle? I'm always a rescuer or a victim. 
Like I'm never a persecutor. <laughs> Because I'm, I'm great. I am. I'm never a persecutor, but it's. I, I came across this quote: the, "The villain plays the victim so well." I think if you are feeling like a victim, start thinking to yourself: you know, could I be seen as a persecutor in this? Because often you just feel like, why can't they just do their job? Honestly, I've just just told them to do this, and they're not doing it. You know, actually, am I am I in that persecutor role as opposed to victim? And that is really uncomfortable to think that other people could be seeing us as as the persecutor so I think we can I think gosh I mean when I'm thinking back to all the different roles I have done and the way one just moves around between it in various different situations whether it is with patients or clients or colleagues or bosses or families or children all those sorts of things Mm -hmm. so right here's the hundred million dollar question what do you do about it how do you how do you get out of it? Because we've already recognised that it's a not a great place to be, particularly as a rescuer, which I think most of us and most of the listeners to this podcast are probably sitting there identifying largely as a rescuer, because I think a lot of professionals, that is our, that is our role. That is our job, pretty much, pretty much the job description, sort, help sort people out. But a lot of people are in positions of leadership, but they have teams or positions of responsibility um, or, or seeing patients or clients that are just completely relying on them. So how do we, how do we step out of it? What, what do we do instead of being a rescuer, a victim, or a persecutor? Yeah, and so that's the, you know, that's the, it is the million dollar question, isn't it? And so, just to to reiterate, the first step is to recognise it to start. Right, we need to just go, oof, I'm here, and to be open to the fact that it might not be all that comfortable. That we do need to acknowledge that actually the path through, you know, is is often through a little bit of, of, of bristle and, and discomfort. Um, and then to go, well, what are my other options? So I think it's 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 easy enough to go, oh, well, that wasn't great. I don't really want to operate in this way. But then without another option, it can feel a little bit like now I'm in no man's land because now what do I do about the fact that actually I haven't been operating optimally? And so actually if you flip the triangle, actually you can just – shift those roles that we've just spoken about into something else. And so that rescuer role can shift into a coach role. So I've talked there about empowering and about, you know, allowing other people to to step up and to have a response uh, to you rather than, you know, just being helped by someone. And so if you shift into the coach role, um, many of us, you know, being a coach, this is not about being an accredited coach. You've got to now go off and do that. It's really just about having a coaching approach, which really just means giving someone that you're wanting to support. You realize that where you might have stepped in as a rescuer, you go, well, what if I was to offer support by way of helping them think through how this could look different? What options do they have available to them how might they be thinking about this? It's really just lending an ear in many ways and truly listening to what it is that they might have as a challenge on their side. Mm. Does that make sense, Rachel, just as a, a flip That does. I was just thinking so practically if you had a, a team member and to, and I've had this in a coaching situation recently, um, this manager was saying to me, he was saying two members of his team really didn't get on and so one of them would come to him and he would then have to go to the other one and sort it out constantly. So for him, that would mean rather than saying to the one who's feeling like a real victim, yeah, okay, I'll sort that out for you. I'll go and have that conversation. It would be for him saying, right, okay, 
how could you have that conversation with that other person? What do you need to think through before you do it? What, what do you think they'll respond well to all those sorts of things? So it's helping them solve their own problems rather than just doing it for them. So by, by taking on that role of being, you having a coaching approach, asking questions, seeing what options might be available to them, rather than diving in, taking it on, saying you'll, you know, and literally taking on whatever challenge, issue, workload uh, there might be, of just being with them in it and going, well, what options do they see? What's the view from their perspective what might they have as options to them to address whatever challenge they might be facing? You've automatically set up a new dynamic. And so what might become uh, an option for them and their role of maybe feeling, you know, more like the victim and feeling like they've got the world on their shoulders is being more of an activator. So they actually go, well, actually, what could I do about this? How could I get a different result? What are the other options? You can see that that's, again, it's a mindset, right? So as just as victim was, oh, it's all on me. It's the world on my shoulders. I've, you know, poor me. It actually can shift to, oh, I have options here. What can I do about this? What could I activate so that I could have a different outcome here? Um, and so starting to get someone to think differently. And then, of course, we're going to behave in different ways. And I love that. It's it's not dependent on the victim thinking, I've got to change this. It's dependent on how you, as the coach, are now seeing the victim, not as someone who's completely helpless and useless and can't do anything themselves, but as someone who's got a lot of potential to solve their own problems. So as soon as I'm going, I'm not trying to help them because they can't help themselves. I'm supporting them because they can help themselves. And so then emerges the activator who goes, oh, great, I can help myself. What do I need to do about that? And that's suddenly they're stepping into, you're supporting them into to shifting themselves into a, a mindset of, I've got this, I've got this. I really can make something look quite different. It might be handing off my workload to somewhere else, someone else, but it's done in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so again, I think that's coming back to your initial Peace, Rachel, is around um, how am I going about this? How is someone handing off their work? <clears throat> you know, are they doing it from a point of helplessness or they're doing it from a you know, victim or they're doing it from a point of actually I'm going to activate something here because how this is set up is not working for me right now. How best do I do that? That's useful for everyone. Yeah, and, and getting someone to, or sorry, supporting somebody to act in a role of activator as opposed to victim is really good for them. Because we know that if you solve your own problems, you're much more likely to have a good solution. If you make decisions to do something yourself, you're much, much more likely to do it. I'm just thinking in the sort of the doctor-patient dynamic where some patients you know, don't have a huge amount of resources. And you do need to do quite a lot for them. But actually, even just putting the ball back in the court, and this is very similar to what we were talking about on the Naughty Monkey episode, you know, saying to them, right, what, what are you going to do next to help yourself? You know, yeah. what are your top three things that you want to do? Or even what do you want? What's the most important thing that you'd like to achieve from the medication or something like that? So they just a bit more empowered to yeah. take responsibility for themselves. Absolutely. And, and so just to sort of close the triangle, obviously, the, the protagonist, which can feel villain-like and, and really is a, an unfavorable character, that we can switch to catalyst. So really just looking at what is the catalyst I need to be and really shifting this, given that I could play you know various roles on the triangle, if I start shifting into actually 
yeah, I just need this to happen. How could I be a catalyst? Which has got a coach-like quality to it. So those two are not far apart. But what I just want to pick up on, Rachel, what you, you know, that really uh, you had a, you started saying, how can I help? And then you shifted your word to support. Mm -hmm. And what I want to pick up on there is how important language is. Mm. Just our own language, our own speak. Oh, I've got to go and help someone on my team. Do you? Do you need to support someone in your team to be, you know, just to use the language you were using there? But Susan Jeffers um, wrote a book called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. And uh, she's, it's the only place I've seen this example. And actually, it's such wonderful and powerful thinking to bring, particularly when we're thinking about shifting how we are thinking about our role in something is the language that we use or the language we encourage for others. So what Susan Jeffers talks about is you either have pain language or you have power language. And it's very interesting to note that most of our language falls into pain language. I ought to, I must, I should, I can't, I have to, I wish I could, if I could, I'll aim to, I'll try, you know, all of those ways of saying things. And, and, and we say it almost apologetically, we don't want to overpromise. And so that's where some of it comes from. And yet it's always got an option out because actually the word she uses is victim. Oh, I'm the victim here. I, w- I wish I could. Uh, I wish I could, but I can't. Uh, I'll try to do that, but I can't. So there's an inherent victiminess in it and so victimhood and so what we want to be very clear about is actually if we can shift our language we can actually start to mentally because remember again this is all in our mental makeup if we can mentally shift out of that you can actually do that purely by the language that you use and now the 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 simplicity of this and the power of this is that power language has two options I will, or I choose. And that's it. There's nothing else in there. Because you can say I will not is an option, but I will or I will not, and I choose. And so a classic example, um, you know, when I've got good rapport with people in a, in a training room and someone says, oh, sorry, I've got to leave, so I have to fetch my, my kid from school. I'm like, do you have to? Oh, yeah, I have to. Well, what would happen if you didn't? Oh, they'd be, they'd be sitting outside on the step. They'd be, you know, it's cold today. They'd be sitting, yeah, but you don't have to. Well, no, I do have to. Who's making you do that? And people suddenly start to unravel. If you've done this work, they realize I'm choosing to fetch my child and I will be late, uh, leaving the session early. I'm like, great, good to go. But choose that you're going to fetch your child and be clear about that. Because otherwise there's inherent apology or victimhood, even in going to fetch your child after school. Mm. And so it's a a nuanced difference, but it's massive when it comes to to mindset. So if I could invite any of the listeners here just to think about what language do I use day to day and start to notice that it's really self-empowering when I can start to say, hey, I'm choosing to leave the session early as I have a commitment or prior commitment I've made. Thank you so much for your time. I've got so much from it. Thank you. And, you know, no one's taken any offense, but we have this inbuilt apology. Oh, I'm sorry, it's not my fault. Like, I, I can't help it. I've got to go. It's pure victim. Um, and so we just want to catch ourselves in our language is such a powerful way to really start with a mindset of, I choose 
coaches choose um, and catalysts choose, activators choose to do things a different way. That's really important, isn't it? And it, or using that language helps you put things squarely in your zone of power. Because I, we talk a lot about the zone of power. Essentially, that's just a circle drawn on a big bit of paper, the circle being things that you're in control of and then stuff outside the circle being everything that you're not in control of. If you're saying, I have to leave, you're saying, I'm not in control of me leaving. Someone else has said I've got to. It's out of my control. That's not, not right. It's not out of your control what time you leave. It's well within your control what time you leave. What's in your control is when you choose to leave. You could leave now or you could leave later and miss your kid. But that is absolutely in your zone of power. When you're saying I have to or I must, I ought to, you're trying to put it in someone else's someone else's control when actually it's not it's in your control and I think that is the thing that helps people get unstuck the most you know in terms of when we're coaching if they are feeling like a victim and if you do catch yourself in a slight victim mentality which I do several times a day (laughs) I have to cook dinner I have to do this actually you know I don't have to that's it's under my control whether I do or not I mean, if I choose, if I choose not to, I might get some hungry, whinging kids, but I could choose to ask somebody else to cook, you know, and then suddenly stuff that I can control that, and I'm much more of an activator than a victim that everything else is happening to. Absolutely. And as you were talking there, Rachel, it became so clear. I have to fetch my kid. Oh, who's the persecutor here? Oh, it's a school and the headmistress and the whoever, the headteacher have to cook my kid's dinner. By nature of saying that, you know, who the who the nasties here, well, my kids, because I have to do it for them. And so suddenly you can see how I've made someone else, they're blaming them. They take up a role on my drama triangle, which they haven't even asked for. They're not even in the room. And yet now you can see how the engagement with someone might be under pressure or strain purely because I've put myself in the victim position. And so it's very powerful once we start to recognize that and quite simply put ourselves into a point of choice, which again, a mechanism is the language that we choose to use. It's so empowering to use that language. And again, I'll take you back to the discomfort that might create. I am choosing to make dinner, even though I don't feel like it. I'm choosing it because of the consequence of not doing it. I'd I'd rather have the discomfort of of doing it now, but that all goes in my zone of, of power, my zone of control. And I'm good with that. And then you can move forward having made that decision and be, I almost want to say, be clean in it. You know, I've, I've made my choices. I'm owning it fully. Might not be exactly what I want to do now. I'd much rather have a glass of wine with my mate, but actually I've chosen this. And so I won't be doing that. I will be doing this. I'll schedule that for another time. So Annie, what I'm wondering is how does this work if if you really do feel you have no choice? So I'm thinking of, you know, a GP who's just finished their surgery, it's half six, and they've got another two hours of admin to do before and then they've got another surgery starting at eight o'clock the next morning. And you're just sitting there thinking, I have to do this admin now. I've got urgent stuff that needs to be done. How does one shift the mindset in those sorts of situations? And so that's a tricky one, right? And absolutely, we all have scenarios or situations that we're in um, that, you know, we, we absolutely can't do anything about. And so it really is then, I'd still come back to, there's an, a moment of, of choice you want to get to, to say, I've chosen this profession, 
warts and all, or I've chosen to have children, warts and all, or, you know, I've chosen this path and with it come some of the things that are not amazing. You know, there are very few things that we do in life where they are amazing from beginning to end and there's no aspect of that um, that, you know, we just would go, oh, I'd rather not have th- that part. And yet it comes, it's, it's the full parcel. And so what is useful then is to, again, try and find, be it a minute or two of just a pause, get that, uh, was it the crossing hemispheres, Rachel, of just getting some different level of thinking and the pause looks different for different people be it a breath of of you know deep breathing exercise be it a a short moment of just stillness be it a walk around the block be it a grab a cup of coffee just recollect oneself and to go wow these next two hours are going to feel tough but I chose this profession this is where I am right now And sometimes we've got to grit our teeth and get through them. It might be that if we're having so many of those moments that we then start to recognize that. And at some point, be it at the weekend, when we have a day off or when we're able to find space of leave, reassess and go, crikey, I'm having a lot of these moments. Am I in the right job? Am I in the right profession? Am I in the right relationship? Am I in the right, you know, so I'm not saying, you know, shut your eyes and keep going because everything will be okay in the end. Absolutely, there are necessarily times for deep reflection and reassessing and course correcting where we need to. What we don't want to do is do that in a moment of unhappiness or or discomfort because, A, again, we come back to you probably won't do it well, even if it means you need to not be in, in that line of work or in that time slot maybe actually that's the shift for you that doesn't work you need to always try and do work earlier in the day that's when you're at your best whatever it might be or what options there are to you is to then take that step back and go I'm here now I need to get this done but actually I'm going to take a moment to go is there a way I can avoid getting to this point so often Mm. what are my options here and maybe bouncing that off someone depending on what's going to work best for you. Yeah, I've certainly experienced that with either myself when I have too much work to fit in the side or some people I've been coaching where they've, they've known they've got too much and they thought, actually, I choose to do some of this work on my on my day off, but I've chosen to do it there. I'm going to make it nice with a lovely cup of tea and a piece of cake and stuff, and I've chosen to it then, and it feels so much better than feeling forced to do it at another time when they when they really didn't want to. So it's, like you said, it's, it's the what am I choosing here? And I think, so that's interesting about you know, how we get out of the victimhood. In terms of rescuer, I mean, I, I've done this work a lot with, with practice managers and they are one, they are people that, believe me, it's like every 30 seconds people come through their door and say, oh, I need to this. What can you sort this out for me? Can you sort this out? And, and for some of them, just learning to stop and say, I've got some thoughts, but what do you think? What have you done? What solutions have you got? Have you got any suggestions? Just saying, just ask them what the other people would do, what options they've got before you give your bit of advice is enough just to get into that that coach role rather than than stay in rescuer. Absolutely. And in fact, you start to, you know, certainly if you're working with a team or, you know, I've even seen it in some instances with my children. They just know that if they're going to ask for how to do something, invariably it's going to come with, well, what have you thought of so far? Or what options do you have available? Whatever the appropriate sort of question would be for for those people in your team or those people that you interact with most. They start to get into a pattern and go, 
oh, I know exactly what they're going to say. They're going to ask me what I thought. So let me think what I thought. Sometimes self-solve. Sometimes don't, but come with a very different tone of I'm considering these two options or I'm, I'm, I'm now it's a different issue they're coming to you with. Not help, don't know what to do, make it all better. But I thought of these but I'm not sure which would be the best one, or I thought of these and now I'm stuck because I'm not sure that this is the right solution here. There might still be a question within that of go and think some more, or it might then be helping them grapple an issue, which is slightly different to they don't know what they're doing. I have to come in and save the day. And so it, it is around starting to create habits, which take time, right? They're not going to happen overnight, but starting to create habits with your team and with those that you interact with, where they're starting to go, Oh, actually, what what might I do here, or how could this look different? You know, what what are my own thoughts on this? So, Annie, in a minute, I'm gonna time is nearly gone. I'll ask you for your three top tips for how to get out of the drama triangle when you when you find yourself in it. Um, but I thought it might just be good to mention um, some resources that we've got available for for teams, um, for leaders, for managers, whether you're in healthcare or whether you work in another organisation that's sort of a high stress environment. And you maybe are feeling you're rescuing your team, but you're really worried about the well-being of your team members. Um, you want people to be resilient, have better conversations, but you're not quite sure how to go about it. Um, Annie and I run a membership called the Resilient Team Academy, and that is for leaders who want to be able to get out of rescue, really, who want to be able to be more coach, have better conversations and support their teams without burning out themselves. I think the one thing in COVID that we did see was that managers were running around like headless chickens um, and, and feeling exhausted, worrying about their teams. And often they had a day job, like they were delivering surgeries or client facing stuff themselves, but also they had to look after their teams. So we've created a series of resources using some of the shapes we're talking about. The, the drama triangle is one of them. Um, and we are running a membership which consists of a webinar every month that's a deep dive into one of these issues um, and you can join that live or listen to a recording or an audio we also provide some team building activities which come with a three minute bite-sized video and uh, an activity to do with teams just to help build trust explore some of this and there's also um, seven core content modules available when you join the membership teaching you all about the different shapes such as the drama triangle the zone of power the prioritization grid and how you can use those with your team so we provide handouts and worksheets for one-to-one -one conversations plus we have coaching demonstrations and lots of other bonus resources in there as well so it's really for you if you'd like some help and support for you as a leader to support your teams and and how else might might leaders benefit from it Annie? Well actually as you were talking there Rachel I was thinking and this is what we've seen is actually just inherent in taking the time to reflect and focus on some of those great things you've talked about is the pause and so I've talked about the pause, sometimes it's a very short minute or two, but actually there's just, it's taking that time to just give back to yourself. It's very hard now. And that's what I'm seeing so much of at the moment. And we talk about avoiding burnout. Actually, one of the steps towards that is really just, it's that step back. It's the breathe out. It's the, it's the check back in with self, but in a space that's not fraught and frenetic and having anyone expecting anything of you, but for you to kind of map your own path the challenge we face is that if you know if we don't take control of our own time someone else will and then we default to all sorts of tricky 
ways in which we just start behaving because actually it, it it just becomes challenging and we're not getting the pause to think what is the best route forward now great so if if you're interested in that then do click on the link in the show notes it's called the resilient team academy and if you have colleagues that you think might be interested in it then do pass the uh, the the news on uh, we're opening just until the beginning of may um and it's a membership that's going to help you um support people for well-being we talk about prioritization we talk about the drama triangle and coaching we talk about how we respond to stress and there's different stories we tell each, ourselves in our heads and we talk about how to take a coaching approach so we'd love you to join us if you're interested and just before we go annie uh, what would be your three top tips when you are finding yourself in the drama triangle what what should people do in the moment when they notice it yeah so no, well I guess the first one is really just noticing it so actually being okay with that being okay with the discomfort it's taking the mini pause to catch yourself and so just to recognize then to turn inward so it's so easy to get defensive and wanting to make it someone else's fault and we do that so naturally it's such a human thing that happens don't beat yourself up, but do turn inward to go, actually, what do I choose now? And really recognizing that the choice sits with you as uh, frenetic as an external circumstance might be. And then the third one is really just watch your language. Just think about what language you're using. And I will and I choose can feel hard, but try them out because it really can shift your impact on someone else but actually amazingly the impact on yourself and your own mindset. Great. And I think for me, I, just one thing really is just before you give advice, just ask the other person, what do they think? What do they think they could do instead? And that's just the start of being able to get out of the rescuer. So thank you so much for joining us, Annie. That's been a, a fascinating tour of the drama triangle. If people wanted to contact you, how could they find you? Yeah, so I'm uh, at proteus.leadership, but also at Annie at proteus.training by email. Um, and I'll be on LinkedIn as well. And you'll find me at the Resilience Team Academy. Brilliant. And what we'll do as well, we have handout about the drama triangle. So I'll put that for download in the show notes as well. So you can have a look at it, including how to get out of it into Catalyst, Activator and Coach. And if you're interested in joining us in the Resilient Team Academy, it's really a short amount of commitment needed in terms of the bite-sized resources coming out every month. We know you don't have very much time as a leader. So these things are done for you. They're short, uh, they're accessible, and they will genuinely help you get a happy thriving team without burning out yourself so i hope to see some of you in there uh thanks for joining us this week and we'll see you soon thanks for listening if you've enjoyed this episode then please share it with your friends and colleagues please subscribe to my you are not a frog email list and subscribe to the podcast and if you have enjoyed it then please leave me a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts so keep well everyone you're doing a great job you got this